Good afternoon, uh, everyone, or good evening if you are overseas. Uh, we are honored to have Professor Eswa Prasad, who will be presenting China's role in global finance, a very timely but also a very complex subject. Professor Prasad is an eminent economist, authority on international financial markets and currency. He also focused his research on China as well as India. And but what I admire about him is he's able to take the, a very complex economic subject, which he has done wonderful, rigorous research, but related to policy and able to explain to lay people. As a result, you will see his name in so many news articles, or he appears on television programs, and he testified before US Congress. So he's educating not only his students, but the public. That's why is the Tuloni Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University. At the same time, He's a senior fellow at Brookings Institution and the, the new century chair in international economics. Meanwhile, he found the time not only publishing numerous papers, he's writing a new book, which will be published by Harvard University Press and it's called The Digital Revolution. I'm sorry, the future of money, the digital revolution in transforming currency. In other words, what the future will look like for all of us. Without further ado, let me turn it over to Professor uh, Um, uh, Professor Prasad, I'm going to jump in just quickly so people know how to ask mm -hmm. questions um, because I'm sure there will be plenty. Um, so those of you who have been here before, um, know the drill. Those of you who haven't, there is a Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen. Please just enter your questions in there at any point during the talk. Um, and if you would like to submit anonymously, there is a button to do that. Uh, and if not, please provide your name and your affiliation so that we know who we're talking to. Thank you. And Professor Prasad, over to you. Thank you for that. And thank you very much, um, Professor Axel, for the invitation and also for the very kind um, introduction. Um, I would like to dedicate this um, lecture actually to Professor Isra Vogel, um, whom I did not know personally, but I've greatly admired his work and have been very much influenced um, by his work over the years. Um, and I know that while he's not with us um, in person, in fact, he had originally invited me to uh, give this lecture some time ago. But I know he is very much with us in spirit and his work um, certainly is going to have um, influence lasting well beyond um, his time. 
Um, and of course, there are many other distinguished people um, on this um, uh, um, discussion as well. So I'm very grateful to all of you uh, for taking the time um, to join us today. My plan for today is to talk about uh, um, a variety of issues related to um, China, but trying to keep the theme of financial markets at the center of it all. Um, so I plan to discuss China's short-term economic prospects as I see them, um, pivot to talking about the medium-term um, challenges that China face and how the Chinese government is going about um, changing policies to deal with them. And then I talk about um, China's financial markets uh, in particular, um, and also about um, what role China might play in global finance over the years, which will um, involve issues related to its currency, its capital account, and more broadly, China's leadership. And of course, um, uh, there will be an undercurrent about the US-China relationship, which permeates much of the discussion today. Starting with the short term, of course, China has come through um, the very difficult period that the global economy has been experiencing in recent quarters um, remarkably well. Um, Chinese GDP growth certainly took a very big hit in the second quarter of 2020, but among the major economies, China was among the first to bounce back very rapidly. Um, and this year, it looks like the Chinese and US economies will be the key drivers of global growth. There is one very interesting distinction between the way that the US and Chinese recoveries have been um, set off. Um, in the US, we've had a massive amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus. In China, there has been stimulus, both in terms of a larger fiscal deficit in 2020, as well as a number of monetary policy actions, <clears throat> including cuts in interest rates, cuts in the required reserve ratio of commercial banks, a number of targeted lending programs. But my view is that overall China's stimulus measures have been relatively restrained considering how big a hit the economy took in the second, in the second quarter of 2020. Why is this? Um, given how large the hit was, um, why was China so restrained? I think there are two reasons to keep in mind, and this will again have implications for many of the issues we talk about. One is that uh, um, as in 2008, 2009, um, right after the global financial crisis, when um, the Chinese economy took a big hit, but got back on its feet much earlier than other economies, investment played a very important role in this recovery as well. But China recognizes that there was a very big price to pay for that investment-led recovery that it undertook in 2008-2009, because that recovery was financed through bank lending. It was financed through a financial system that was very good at pumping out credit, but not necessarily at allocating it well to the most productive sectors of the economy. So while the headline GDP number certainly looked very good, for China during a very difficult period um, for the world economy in 2009, it had longer term consequences, especially in terms of the buildup of risks in the financial system. That lesson I think has been taken to heart by Chinese policymakers, which is one of the crucial reasons why we saw 
policy restraint during this recovery um, because the Chinese government, I think, recognized that they needed to be very cognizant of the medium-term risks that could be created by short-term stimulus measures. And I think it was a good thing overall that China had a more balanced stimulus path this time with moderate monetary and fiscal stimulus. The other issue was that there was in fact some degree of stimulus already in the pipeline um, because in 2019, even before um, the pandemic shock hit, um, the Chinese economy's growth had been slowing um, to a slightly slower pace than in previous years. And there were concerns about whether the Chinese economy was losing growth momentum, especially because of the government's desire um, to maintain control over financial risks. Um, so some stimulus was already in the pipeline, especially in terms of local government borrowing. The local government borrowing certainly creates risks of its own, but one of the things that we've seen repeatedly over the last couple of decades is that additional borrowing by local governments, especially borrowing that goes to finance infrastructure spending, takes a few quarters to find its way through the economy and to show up in terms of GDP growth. Um, and that seems to have been the case this time as well. So there was some stimulus in the pipeline. Um, so these factors seem to have borne the Chinese economy along. And it is quite remarkable that not only has the Chinese economy done quite well over the last three or four quarters, but the initial fears that me and some other analysts had, as well as the Chinese government itself, that the growth rebalancing project of the Chinese government might get set back, which looked like it was happening in the first couple of quarters after the pandemic, actually that concern started receding. We've seen um, in the last couple of quarters um, that the growth recovery has been fairly well balanced. We've had um, investment doing quite well, but um, consumption, especially retail sales have held up quite well. The services sector has contributed quite significantly to the recovery. So it's not just a manufacturing led recovery. Um, so overall the economy um, doesn't seem to have too badly been hit in terms of being deflected from its growth rebalancing path. Now, this is not to say that as we start looking to the medium term that there are not risks and very significant challenges. Um, one of the key concerns in the context of Chinese long-term growth is whether it can get past some of the difficulties that are caused by not only financial system risks, but a number of other structural factors including the weaknesses in a large part of the economy, especially the state-owned enterprises and the demographic factors that are certainly not helping um, China along. So first, let's think a little bit about how China has gone about trying to deal with these challenges and what it sees as the path forward in terms of trying to maintain decent growth. Now, in terms of maintaining decent growth, um, the question is what are the Chinese government's objectives. Um, it was somewhat heartening that in 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, um, the Chinese government decided not to announce a growth target. Um, that growth target is back on right now in the latest uh, National People's Congress meeting and the Work Committee meeting um, around the same time. The Chinese government did put what it 
seems to have uh, advertised as a lower bound on acceptable growth, which is somewhere around 6%. Um, there are, I think, reasonable questions about whether um, the Chinese economy should have a growth target at all, because it seems to send um, signals, especially to provincial governments, about the need to emphasize growth um, relative to other objectives, such as environmental sustainability and management of financial system risks. But I think at this stage, at least in terms of uh, maintaining confidence in the prospects of the Chinese economy's uh, uh, short-term prospects. Perhaps it's not bad that there was uh, uh, a floor set on growth. Now, the interesting thing about this floor of 6% is that at this point, just given base effects and given what happened in 2020, if the Chinese economy barely registered any growth in the latter half of this year, China would deliver 6% growth um, just um, as a matter of uh, um, uh, simple arithmetic. So it's not a very ambitious growth target, um, but I think the Chinese government wants to signal that its economy is back on track, but also set the stage for what I think is important, which is a normalization of policies. Now, one might say, why is it important to talk about normalization of macroeconomic policies if, as I just argued, China did not have a great deal of uh, either monetary or fiscal uh, stimulus during a very difficult year. Here again, I think the Chinese government is wisely keeping its eyes on the long-term risks. If we look at measures of credit growth in the economy, um, which are fairly important indicators, both in terms of how much credit the financial system is providing to the economy, but also the potential risks building up in the um, system. If we look at measures such as um, M2 growth, that has been running at around um, uh, 10 to 11%, depending on exactly how and when you measure it, which is a little bit above nominal GDP growth. Total social financing growth numbers have been somewhere in the range of 12 to 13%. Now, these are somewhat lower numbers than in previous years, but the economy in nominal terms is probably growing at about um, uh, eight to 9% or at the upper end, perhaps around 10%. So this is a bit of a worry because it means that credit in the economy is still expanding at a slightly faster pace than nominal GDP growth. So if you think about the government's concern about financial risks building up in the economy, it suggests that they haven't gotten things quite under control yet. Now, how large are these financial risks? That is a matter, of course, that um, uh, uh, could be the subject of um, uh, substantial um, discussion. One of the key objectives of the Chinese government um, that it set in um, uh, motion as a key priority about three years ago was, of course, deleveraging. Now, deleveraging in the context of a normal economy means either reducing the debt to GDP ratio or perhaps even reducing the absolute amount of nominal debt in an economy. In China, deleveraging doesn't mean either of these things. In China, deleveraging simply means making sure that the problem, which is the amount of leverage, doesn't grow faster than nominal GDP. And I think given how large the stock of leverage in the economy is, at one level, if you can get a glide path such that you have measures of credit growth asymptoting from above to the rate of nominal GDP growth, 
and keeping leverage in the economy roughly constant, that would be success um, at some level. And the Chinese government actually had made a significant amount of progress towards this goal uh, until a couple of years ago. Overall leverage in the economy had pretty much stabilized. And most importantly, corporate leverages ratio to GDP had actually started declining very, very modestly, but at least it was going in the right direction. Leverage has certainly increased over the last year or so, and one could argue that it's with good reason because after all, um, the economy did face a very difficult um, period. But I think the risk right now is that while corporate leverage comes somewhat under control, there is a different element of leverage that has started creating a significant amount of concern, and I think rightly so, which is the expansion of household balance sheets. Now, the household debt to GDP ratio um, about seven, eight years ago used to be barely 15% of GDP. That number is now a shade over 50% of GDP. Uh, again, um, in China's context, these numbers have to be interpreted a little carefully because exactly how you measure them, what you put in the numerator and the denominator, when you take the measurement matters a lot, but by most measures, household debt has increased quite significantly. Now, one perspective as you look at household debt um, in China is that it's not a worry. Why is it not a worry? 50% of GDP of household debt sounds like a great worry, but remember, this is an economy where households have traditionally been very large savers. Um, so in fact, if you look at deposits in the banking system, um, they're somewhere in the range of 160 to 170% of GDP. About half of that is accounted for by household deposits. So if household deposits in the banking system are somewhere in the range of 80 to 90% of GDP, overall household balance sheets don't look um, like they're that much of a problem. But as with many other things, um, the granularity of these issues is where the problem lies. It's not that household balance sheets from a macro perspective might be stressed, but there are many households that are very exposed in particular to mortgage lending. Um, so what happens to the housing market matters to them a great deal. Likewise, there are many developers um, and in turn many banks that have lent to those developers that are very exposed to what happens in the real estate sector. So I think, as you can see, I'm building up a picture where one might argue that the numbers that one sees um, in China are certainly very worrying. If you look at the overall amount of leverage in the economy, um, which uh, uh, is approaching something like 280% of GDP, again, depending on what measure you look at, um, that is not hugely out of line with the sort of overall leverage ratios that you see in economies like the US and Japan, with one key difference. In the US and Japan, um, a lot of this borrowing is done by the government, which of course creates its own concerns. But in China, it's been corporate leverage that was the big concern. It remains a concern, but household leverage is the new and emerging concern. But stepping back from these leverage numbers, I think the bigger question is really whether the financial system is working well. Um, my view for a long time has been that unless China fixes finance, it's going to be very difficult to accomplish what it wants to do. 
And what the Chinese government wants to do is certainly move towards a more sustainable growth path, sustainable both in terms of the momentum of growth itself, but also in terms of a variety of other issues such as maintaining decent employment growth, uh, delivering equitable um, economic outcomes, um, providing uh, balanced regional growth, all of this without creating financial system risks. For all of this, you need a financial system that works a lot better. This message certainly seems to have hit home with the Chinese government. It is very interesting to think about what we have seen in terms of reforms over the last um, um, decade or so. If one thinks about the major areas where China needs reforms, and the list has not changed that much over time, reform of labor markets, and in particular the hukou system, um, reform of the overall social welfare system, um, including pensions, the unemployment um, benefit system, and other um, social benefits, um, uh, measures to improve um, corporate governance and uh, um, other aspects of uh, institutional frameworks um, in the economy, reform of the state-owned enterprises. In all of these areas, there has been progress but relatively limited. The one area in which there has been significant progress, in which there have been um, reforms that one can certainly point to over the last few years, most of those reforms have to do with the financial sector or related issues um, such as capital account opening, which again has direct implications for capital markets more broadly and the exchange rate regime. So at one level, it is promising that the Chinese government recognizes that unless it has a better machinery in place that can take both domestic savings, of which there is a lot in China, as well as foreign capital coming into the economy and do a good job of allocating it to productive parts of the economy, it's going to be very difficult for China to maintain good growth. Because ultimately, going back to the factors that I mentioned that are um, crucial for China's um, long-term growth um, and to overcome factors such as um, weak demographics and so on. What is really crucial for China is to generate good productivity growth. And this requires two things. You need better productivity growth in all sectors of the economy, and you need reallocation of labor from the less productive to the more productive parts of the economy. The financial system has not in general done a good job of reallocating capital in a way that would allow this to happen. Um, typically in China, the large state-owned enterprises um, have undertaken um, a considerable investment in phys physical capital, but they have not generated much employment growth. They have not generated much productivity growth. A lot of the employment and productivity growth has come from small and medium enterprises in the private sector more broadly, but especially in the services sector. These sectors have not gotten a great deal of financing, especially from the large commercial banks. The smaller commercial banks have been more aggressive at lending to these parts of the economy, but these banks have not had great risk management practices and therefore there are risks coming from banks that are in some ways doing exactly what the government wants them to do. So what the government has tried to do at one level is to broaden um, the availability of finance um, through development of capital markets, um, especially bond markets and equity markets, but these are not easily accessible um, to small and medium enterprises in particular. So the Chinese government has for a long time relied 
on a part of the economy, uh, a part of the financial system that has a lot of risks of its own, which is shadow banking. Um, shadow banking gets a very bad rap in practically um, every country, sometimes with good reasons, sometimes with not so good reason. Now, the one thing about shadow finance is that it's not very tightly regulated, but sometimes it does fill in gaps that are left by the formal financial system. So shadow finance in China has actually played a fairly useful role in channeling credit uh, to the parts of the economy that were not getting financing from um, the larger commercial banks. Now, it's worth mentioning a couple of observations here. First, um, it's not that the Chinese government was not cognizant of the risks of shadow banking, but they needed to find a way to make sure that the parts of the economy that could generate employment and productivity growth were getting financing. So they sort of tolerated it. It was a sort of semi don't ask, don't tell kind of policy. But of course, the risks have become greater over time. So they've started clamping down on the shadow banking sector. The second issue is I've argued that the big commercial banks um, are not lending to um, the small and medium enterprises, but this is a growing part of the economy. And certainly now that um, one of the reforms that the Chinese government has undertaken is interest rate liberalization, in principle, the large banks should be able to lend to the small and medium enterprises and should be able to um, price in the risk of lending to that sector, which is certainly a lot riskier than lending to uh, large uh, state-owned enterprises. Why aren't they doing it? To that, my uh, response would be twofold. One is that there is a legacy problem. Um, a lot of the outstanding stock of loans that have been made by the large commercial banks, of course, is to the large state-owned enterprises. So if those enterprises don't get um, some of their loans rolled over, if they don't get their working capital requirements financed, then those loans show up as non-performing loans in the books of the state-owned banks, which the regulator certainly doesn't want to see. Um, so we have a locked-in situation right now where the legacy problem makes it very difficult for the large state-owned banks to basically shake off um, that legacy um, problem. But I think the other issue is um, that of incentives, um, because lending to the private sector is certainly um, riskier, and any reasonable banker may not see it in his or her um, benefit to take uh, uh, advantage of those risky lending opportunities uh, when there are much safer lending opportunities that are available. So this comes to um, what I think is really important as one looks at the reform landscape in China. I spoke about how many of the reforms have been focused on financial markets and capital markets more broadly, how the reforms in the other parts of the economy have been somewhat um, weaker. So for instance, if you don't reform the social safety net, it's very hard to undertake um, rigorous reform of the state-owned enterprises because the large state-owned enterprises have traditionally been the social safety net for much of the population. If you don't reform the state-owned enterprises and tighten their budget constraints, it's difficult to break the link from the state-owned enterprises. Um, so many of these reforms are locked in, but I think there is an even greater danger here. And that danger here is that if you undertake reforms to one part of the financial system um, without, um, without um, 
reforms that are necessary for um, getting the financial system working well, <laughs> that creates even greater risks of its own. So what are these reforms that are important for financial markets to work well? It's all very well for the Chinese government to say, let the markets work as a pricing mechanism. Um, we want some degree of failure. So for instance, you want certain trust companies to fail. Maybe you want um, certain bond issuances not to work out well because then investors will realize that the financial system is not entirely backed up by the Chinese government and therefore you need a market discipline. But to make market discipline well, you need certain things. You need better corporate governance procedures. You need um, better corporate as well as government transparency. You need better auditing and accounting mechanisms. And you need um, the rule of law to work well. Um, in all of these areas, the progress has been much more limited than in terms of actually freeing up the financial system. So my worry about China's reform process is twofold. One is that a lot of the reforms to parts of the economy that are really crucial for long-term growth are not being undertaken. Uh, and this includes state-owned enterprise reform, um, reforms to the hukou system and so on, uh, all of which I mentioned earlier as having been areas where there is limited progress, but not as much as one would like. But I think the bigger issue is really that of institutional reform whether China is going to upgrade its institutional framework, which includes corporate governance, public governance, um, auditing and accounting mechanisms that I mentioned earlier, um, and also the rule of law so that market discipline can work a lot better. So I think we're going to see in the coming years, a lot of stumbles and missteps. And this is not because China is not moving in the right direction. I would characterize China's lurching in the right direction, but this very uneven reform process actually creates even more risks of its own. So I think the naysayers about China, and I wouldn't quite count myself among them, although I have a lot of concerns about China. I think the naysayers of China, every time we see a, a trust company going under or a, a major bond default taking place are going to uh, say that, aha, this is the moment when the Chinese system is going to crumble and fall apart. My view is that actually it's some stresses being relieved from the system. And because of the fact that you have this very unbalanced reform process, these stumbles are going to be greater than they would otherwise be, but it's not quite going to bring the Chinese financial system uh, um, to its knees. Um, but this is a major challenge that the Chinese government still faces, getting finance to work well so that you get better capital allocation, better uh, productivity growth, and ultimately, unless China can get better productivity growth, it's hard to see China being able to meet its longer term objectives in terms of GDP growth and so on. Now, as I talk about the financial system, it's worth thinking about how China's domestic financial system is connected to the rest of the world. Uh, which brings us to uh, two topics that are near and dear to my heart and which uh, I think have implications not just for China's domestic performance, but the world at large, which is China's exchange rate as well um, as the capital account. Now, it is interesting to note that um, uh, about a decade ago, China made a commitment to opening up its capital account, and certainly China has proceeded by and large in that direction, opening up to inflows from foreign investors, as well as making it easier for Chinese 
households and Chinese corporations to invest abroad, to diversify their portfolios internationally, all of which are good things um, in my view. Um, but the Chinese government has gone about this in a, um, in a way that is quite distinct uh, from other economies. In some of my own research, I have argued the capital account opening can be a good thing for an economy, although it certainly has risks. But in my view, the biggest benefits of capital account opening are really not about the money coming into an economy, but what comes with the money. And what comes with the money are what I've referred to as collateral benefits. This can include technology, it can include um, improvements in market discipline induced by foreign investors, it can include improvements in corporate governance as a consequence of foreign investors coming in and investing um, in domestic firms or financial institutions. And China has, in my view, adopted this playbook when China brought in foreign strategic investors into its banks um, as a way of improving their corporate governance. On now, when China is inviting foreign investors into its equity and bond markets so that again, those markets can become deeper, more liquid, more transparent. I think these are all good things for China uh, eventually. Um, there was some concern that China may eventually switch from being a capital account surplus country, um, a current account surplus country to a current account deficit country so that it needs more foreign capital. That day seems to have been pushed off somewhat into the future, but I think really it's more about how China uses this foreign capital in order to improve its financial system that is really crucial. And I think the PBOC, the People's Bank of China has really adopted this collateral benefits approach where they've um, calibrated their capital account opening in a way that generates these collateral benefits while reducing the risks. But there have been risks. Um, certainly in 2015, when the Chinese economy was not doing well, when there was a, um, a gusher of capital leaving the country, when there was um, substantial depreciation pressure on the currency, China went back to its old playbook of uh, um, restricting capital outflows, putting back some of the capital controls in place, or at least tightening the existing controls. So that certainly created concerns in the minds of international investors about how serious China was to its capital account opening program. But I think the last two or three years should give us some confidence in that uh, measure. Even when the Chinese economy was not doing so well, um, latter half of uh, first half of last year, um, there was no rolling back of the capital account uh, opening. And what is even more interesting is that the Chinese uh, central bank's commitment towards a more flexible exchange rate does seem to have been borne out over the last couple of years. And the last couple of years are particularly interesting because there have been episodes of both very significant appreciation of the currency as well as depreciation of the currency. In 2019, there was a period when the um, renminbi was depreciating quite significantly relative to the dollar and on a trade-weighted basis, but the government let it, uh, the central bank let it play out. Um, in the latter half of 2020, um, uh, the Chinese currency appreciated quite significantly relative to the dollar and somewhat less so on a trade-weighted basis, but it certainly did appreciate. Now, the good thing was that the world, um, even though the economy was not doing so well, was uh, eager to get Chinese imports of manufactured goods. So Chinese exports held together very well, but I think it's notable 
that over the last two years, there's been minimal intervention by the central bank in foreign exchange markets. Um, the uh, foreign exchange reserves, which are a decent indicator of uh, um, the amount of exchange rate in, uh, market intervention, although not a perfect one, have been relatively stable in the range of 3.1 to $3.2 trillion over the last two years. So I think China is now in a good position to do this, and it is sending a signal to foreign investors that it is committed to opening up the capital account and um, to uh, allowing the exchange rate float more freely. So I think this is going to help um, the renminbi in its role as, uh, um, as an international currency. Which brings us to the last topic, which is even dearer to my heart because as Professor Xiao mentioned, I've just finished a book on digital currencies. And this is about um, all the interest right now in China's digital um, currency. Um, there are other countries that have actually already rolled out their central bank digital currencies. The Bahamas rolled out its digital currency nationwide a few months ago. There are other economies, including Sweden, that are undertaking trials. But certainly China being uh, as important an economy as it is to the world, um, when it undertakes uh, um, digital currency trials, certainly um, that's going to be uh, a much uh, more likely game changer for the world. But game changer in what aspect? My view is that one of the reasons and um, statements by PBC officials bear this out, one of the reasons why China is moving forward to um, introducing a central bank digital currency is to maintain the relevance of central bank money at the retail level. Certainly uh, in China, I haven't been to China um, since uh, December of 2019, but um, it's hard to escape the fact that um, um, I was probably quite anachronistic in um, having actual yuan notes in my um, wallet. Most uh, uh, people in China do undertake even um, the most basic of retail transactions using their cell phones. And of course, not only are digital payments becoming much more prevalent, um, but there are two behemoths WeChat Pay and Alipay that have become um, vitally important in terms of the payment ecosystem. So I think one of the concerns that the Chinese authorities rightfully have is the dominance of the payment system by two players, which might end up making it harder for new entrants, which might reduce the amount of innovation in this space, and certainly having a duopoly or even an oligopoly in charge of the payment systems does create some nervousness in the minds of, uh, um, uh, of regulators and central bankers. So I think at one level, the um, uh, digital um, Chinese yuan is going to be um, a sort of backstop um, to the private sector payment systems, but it also makes um, central bank money continue to be relevant even in the uh, retail space. But is this really going to be a game changer in terms of China's renminbi playing a role in global finance? Um, I know there are uh, many who feel that finally the dollar is going to receive its comeuppance and the digital yuan is ultimately going to ch uh, challenge the dollar supremacy. I think not. Um, if you think about cross-border payments, those are largely digital already. Um, so having a digital yuan by itself is not going to fundamentally change that structure. But there is going to be one other thing that could potentially be a game changer. This is not the digital yuan, but it is the cross-border interbank payment system. 
which is a payment system that China set up um, a few years ago. I think it's been about four or five years right now, which is important domestically, but also can talk to foreign payment systems. More importantly, the CIPS can eventually be scaled up to do something that currently SWIFT and only SWIFT does, which is to convey messages about international financial transactions. Now, SWIFT is seen as being dominated by the US. It's not, it's a nonpartisan body, but given the dominance of the US and especially US dollar-based financial institutions in global finance, SWIFT is subject to a lot of influence by um, the US. All SWIFT does is send messages. The actual transfer of funds does not take place through SWIFT, but managing SWIFT um, can actually have a very powerful effect on countries. This is why countries like Russia, Iran fear being cut off from SWIFT. Um, so China could end up setting up its own uh, payment system that can communicate with global payment systems. So that may actually play a significant role in China's currency becoming a more important international currency, but in one very specific dimension, which is international payments. But is China's currency going to be seen as a reserve currency, as a safe haven currency? One might argue that China's currency is now an official reserve currency. It is in the IMF's reserve basket. About 2% of global foreign exchange reserves are held in renminbi. But I see it as very difficult for that number to change very significantly unless China not only continues with uh, um, opening up its capital account and freeing up its exchange rate and developing its financial markets, which are all important economic criteria. But in my view, there are other criteria that are crucial as well. And these relate to the institutional framework of uh, a country. If you think about all the safe haven currencies right now, um, Europe, um, the Euro, the Japanese Yen, these are all buffered by countries that have a very strong institutional framework, which means that the rule of law protects both domestic and foreign investors, and even the government is subject to that rule of law. You have an independent central bank, and you have an institutionalized system of checks and balances. Um, I don't think China has moved very much in the direction of strengthening its institutional framework. So I think the renminbi is well on its way to becoming an important international currency as China becomes a larger economy in terms of world GDP, in terms of world trade, if China plays its cards right. But without significant changes to its institutional framework, I don't see China um, and its currency becoming dominant in terms of international finance. So overall, the picture I've painted here is a relatively benign one of decent short-term prospects, um, uh, decent longer-term prospects as well, if China gets its um, reforms right. And certainly, I think we're going to see China play a much more assertive role um, in terms of not just international finance, but in terms of geopolitical affairs uh, more broadly. So um, for those of us who are watching China, all I can say is hang on and hold tight. It's going to be an interesting ride in the coming years. Thank you very much, Esbord. Uh, uh, that's really a tour de force. You first cover the Chinese financial market, the challenges facing China, then you relate to the global financial market and also what China has to do. Uh, I'd like to start a question of my own first. 
uh, to reform the financial market and the, as well as open up the capital account. There are two school of thoughts in China or in the world. One is I call the Big Bang School. Do it quickly. And the other one is the gradual school. And the trade-off is one is um, stability of the total economy versus some gradual adjustments that allow the whole economy to move in a stable way. What's your view about those two approaches? Do you have a view about that? In 2005, the esteemed Professor Raghuram Rajan and I had an essay in the American Economic Review where we argued that when you look at issues like financial sector reform, capital account opening, exchange rate liberalization, China should move aggressively and that um, moving in a stepwise fashion um, could lead to more problems. China proved me wrong in at least a couple of dimensions. Um, the government did move forward with um, very gradual capital account opening and with gradual exchange rate flexibility and it created some problems for them as I had anticipated but by and large I have come around to the view that given the complexity of reforming China's financial system and especially because as I said in my remarks all the other supporting infrastructure is not in place yet I would worry that a very drastic move uh, towards a fully market-oriented um, uh, liberalized financial system carries a great deal of risks. Um, so to my mind, the issue is less about whether you move forward with gradual or uh, big bank financial sector reforms, as it is about whether financial sector reforms moves at the same pace as other reforms. So it's going to be a conditional response, uh, Professor Xiao. If China move forward aggressively with institutional reforms, and with other reforms to the economy, I think more aggressive financial sector reforms would be a good idea. Um, but without those other reforms, I think if you move very fast with just financial sector reforms, that creates an unfavorable risk benefit trade-off. Okay, thank you. Uh, here's a question from Scout Chen Jung. He or she is a visiting scholar at Fairbank Center. Uh, I read her, uh, his question. I really appreciate your insight on Chinese economy and financial system. Middle income trap has long been a hot topic in China. I was wondering what might be your take on this issue. Does does middle income trap exist? How to avoid it? So that is certainly a um, well-established empirical regularity. And whether it applies to China or not is going to depend to a large extent on um, the measures that I spoke to that, uh, um, that I think China should take. Now, China is also um, sui generis in one particular respect, of course, that it is a massive economy. and. Um, even if there was no such thing as a middle income trap uh, for an economy that is um, in the range of uh, 13 to 14 trillion dollars in terms of annual GDP, it's just very difficult to sustain 
the sort of uh, growth rates that China has experienced over the last uh, uh, two to three decades. So some degree of convergence, I think, uh, to a more um, uh, normal growth rate um, would have been expected in any case. In my view, the real uh, issue for China is whether it can manage this um, move towards what the government has characterized as a more higher value-added, higher technology uh, industry. Um, and that really comes down to this issue of productivity. Now, for many economies, um, one of the ways of generating better measured productivity growth uh, is simply reallocating labor from less productive to more productive sectors of the economy. And China still has some room to run in that dimension. About four or five years ago, the government used to speak about 150 or so million people who were in the um, who were underemployed in the rural sector in particular, who could be moved to more productive sectors of the economy. That number has certainly come down in many respects, um, but I think there are still a large number of workers in the tens of millions who could be moved to the more productive sectors of the economy. But ultimately you do have to provide not just labor, but also the other resources, especially the financial resources that a country needs in order to um, generate both employment and productivity growth. Uh, so what China does with its financial system and with its other reforms, I think will matter a great deal in terms of whether China can escape the middle income trap at least for the next four to five years. The other question is from Lai. Uh, he would like to, he said, uh, you mentioned the rule of law, which when you uh, talked about the institutional building. And uh, he wonders, China has mastered the black magic that combines a oppressive political regime and an efficient technocratic meritocracy management system. Do you have any comment on that? In other words, can China find a new pathway rather than follow what has been traditionally done through the rule of law? You know, that is an intriguing question. I don't think we've quite um, come to the answer of that, but let me um, uh, talk about this notion of rule of law, because if you ch talk to Chinese government officials, they will point out that um, there have in fact been many significant reforms um, in China's uh, um, uh, judicial system, um, but their definition and conception of the rule of law is a narrow one. It is related to, for instance, um, efficient enforcement of property rights and contractual rights, and you need those rights to be efficiently enforced in order for a market economy or even a partially market-oriented economy to work well. Uh, without that notion of the rule of law, um, these things will not work well. So China is now moving forward even um, on issues like uh, intellectual property rights protection. You can have very good laws on the books, but if there isn't a good enforcement mechanism, it's not going to work well. But my vision of the rule of law is something quite uh, different. When I spoke about the rule of law, especially in the context of uh, um, a safe haven currency, 
Uh, I mean it in the sense that even the government is subject to the rule of law. Um, so there aren't that many countries in the world where you can take your national leader uh, to court or you can take the government to court and sometimes you even win because even the government which passes the laws ultimately has to play by the rules of the game. Um, when you look at uh, investments in US markets, for instance, uh, you may not like the rules and laws, but everybody has to play by them, including the US government. Um, so domestic investors and foreign investors are treated equally under those laws that are promulgated by the US. So that notion of the rule of law, where even the government is subservient to the rule of uh, to um, the legal mechanism, I think doesn't quite exist. So when I spoke about the institutionalized system of checks and balances, now certainly in the US, this institutionalized system was tested very sorely in the last few years. And thank God for all of us, it came through that test um, all right, if a little scarred. Um, but that is what I mean by an institutional framework that um, foreign investors in particular can, uh, can trust. So uh, it depends when you speak about the rules of exactly what conception of the rule of law you have in mind. Thank you. Uh, here's a question from Wei Liang. <clears throat> China recently formed a joint venture with SWIFT. Do you think this will be effective and a viable way to prevent a potential U.S. move to cut off China from SWIFT and the, and the conflict between U.S. and China in the relations? You know, cutting off access to SWIFT would really be the financial equivalent of a, um, uh, of a missile because um, that can have a very powerful effect. This is why um, Russia, for instance, uh, declared that if the US attempted to cut Russia off from SWIFT, that it would be tantamount to an act of uh, war. Um, but having said that, SWIFT, um, I'm sure, would like to argue that it is a non-partisan body. It is based in Brussels. It's not run by the US or any US agency. <clears throat> the reason the US ends up having as much influence on SWIFT as it does is simply because the US dollar-based international financial system is still dominant. So um, any actions taken by the US could end up having an effect, of course, on US banks as well, but on SWIFT's membership more um, broadly. This partnership is an interesting one because as I mentioned in my remarks, the Chinese cross-border interbank payment system, the CIPS, does have messaging capability. So at one level, SWIFT is signing up with one of its potential rivals. Um, so I can see why SWIFT might be interested in doing this because it wants to make sure that it doesn't get completely um, overrun by the um, CIPS. And for China, it may have some advantages as well. Um, that it could more easily link up um, the CIPS um, uh, with the SWIFT uh, messaging system. But ultimately, um, as with many other areas where China starts off with a joint venture and then uh, asserts its market dominance, I think um, this may end up being the writing on the wall for um, SWIFT because, uh, again, given how um, negatively different um, countries around the world perceive the ability of the US to um, use SWIFT not only for direct, but also indirect financial sanctions. 
uh, I think any alternative to SWIFT would probably be welcomed by a large number of countries around the world. Yes, we see that that's a weaponized the financial market the United States has done. Uh, here's a question from Dave Schwartz. Uh, he would like to understand a little bit more about leveraging. You mentioned leveraging and you explained about the household borrowing, corporate borrowing. How does this leveraging work? Does, and uh, is debt a leveraging tool? So um, leverage is just a fancy word in this particular context for the um, amount of outstanding debt. Um, so when we speak about um, leverage, um, uh, I mean, there are some subtle differences uh, um, here, but for uh, all practical purposes, one can think about referring to just the stock of uh, debt. And the big concern about China used to be um, the level of corporate debt to GDP. So that uh, had risen very sharply in the years after the financial crisis and about uh, three or four years ago, stood at about 160% of GDP. So that um, ratio of corporate debt to GDP um, or corporate leverage was seen as very high. And it was seen as particularly risky for the reasons I mentioned earlier, that a lot of this debt was funneled by a state-owned banking system that was not necessarily allocating its credit very effectively. And a lot of that debt was taken by state-owned enterprises. And remember, there are some state-owned enterprises in China that do very well, um, either because they're efficient or um, in combination with the fact that some of them have monopolies in certain sectors, they're actually quite profitable. Those are not the firms that are going to the banks for credit. It's typically the weaker um, firms um, that are less competitive, um, the weaker SOEs um, that have been going to the banks for credit. So that raises uh, um, a lot of concerns and continues to this day about whether if the Chinese government started um, you know, tightening up on uh, the budget constraints of state-owned enterprises, that could result in bad loans that then feed through uh, into the banking system. Very good explanation. Thank you. Here's a, a question from Bernard Kirkel uh, from Turkey. I, he said, um, China accounts for 16% of the global trade for global output in 2019, but only 2% of the global reserves in, uh, are in renminbi. And uh, is with the China's initiative of Belt and Road and other efforts around the world, would there be a much greater acceptance and the role for the renminbi as in the uh, as the internet as the reserves reserve currency? So in 2010, China started um, trying to take measures to address precisely this issue. After all, China was by that time already the second largest economy in the world at market exchange rates. Um, and I think a legitimate question was, why is it that such a large and powerful country has a currency that barely registers in international markets? 
And in the next five years with China's capital account opening and other measures, the renminbi made remarkable progress. It became um, the fifth most important payment currency accounting for about close to 3% of international payments going through the SWIFT network. Uh, it accounted for about 2% of global FX reserves, but then progress stalled. In 2015, the financial markets were not doing well. Uh, the currency started depreciating and um, the progress of the renminbi had made as an international currency stalled um, and it stayed pretty much level um, at about 2% in terms of its share of international payments, reserves, and most of the measures that you look at. So the shine wore off the Chinese currency largely because um, 2015 uh, raised concerns in investors' minds about whether China was going to stick to its commitments of capital account opening and um, exchange rate flexibility. Um, those concerns have been addressed to some extent, um, but uh, um, I think if China um, wants to make its currency be um, much more prominent on the world stage, it will certainly have to undertake further economic reforms, but also institutional reforms along the lines that I mentioned. But there is a twist here. If you do have um, a digital version of the um, Chinese uh, currency, if you do have the CIPS playing a bigger role in international finance, you can very well see some smaller countries, especially countries with central banks that are not very credible and therefore they are not issuing very stable currencies, countries that have very strong trade relationships with Africa or other economic relationships, beginning to use the Yuan a lot more domestically in preference to their domestic currencies. So that could mean that the renminbi starts becoming not only an important payments currency, but also starts being seen as a store of value and perhaps even a unit of account in some of these smaller countries. But is this going to have an effect in any systemic way on international finance? I think not. Uh, I'd like to ask you to comment on the recent events made headlines, how China actually deal with uh, and the digital lending and payment system Related to what you said, China does not have a financial, good financial system to finance the small and medium enterprises and move China to a new service industry-centered economy. With what China has done to Ma Yun recently, can you comment about is that a good move or how would that affect the capital available for small and medium businesses? So there is a, um, one narrative that um, China pulling the plug on the Ant IPO, which would have been a major IPO, at the very last minute is going to make international investors very concerned about um, having any financial involvement with China. Mm -hmm. um, I think the way in which um, this was done is not ideal, but actually I will offer a different narrative that in the long run, this is going to be good for China. And here is why. Um, one of the reasons that Ant was allowed to flourish like many other um, innovators in the financial services space is that China wants its financial services industry to innovate and, and innovated uh, remarkably in terms of um, 
the benefits it's delivered to Chinese households and corporations in terms of availability of microcredit, in terms of a more efficient and a very low cost payment system. So it's been great, but Ant grew too big for its britches. It became economically and politically very powerful. Uh, and in addition, I think there were concerns about the financial system. So Ant as a conglomerate looks like it was doing great, but it was able to shift the risks across different parts of its conglomerate. And I think given the regulatory structure in China, no single regulator, even the regulators altogether, had a clear idea about what was behind the books of this ant uh, conglomerate. So uh, there were many different arms, some that had banking operations and were taking deposits, some that were just managing payments, uh, but these were all commingled together in a way that was very difficult um, to see where the risks might actually lie. So I think the Chinese government has actually done a good thing, which they should have done a lot earlier about forcing AND into a financial holding company structure where there is more insulation among different parts of the conglomerate. This is the approach that is taken by many other countries so that conglomerates don't become so big and their books so non-transparent that you don't know where the risks are. And given the systemic importance of AND to the Chinese financial system, I think it's good. But Certainly the way in which it was done at the last minute after Ant had been allowed to grow so dominant is a bit of a worry. But the rectification plan by Ant that we saw um, came out uh, just about 48 hours ago, uh, I think is going to be a template for other entrants into this financial system space, especially for other big players in the system. Right now there is only one other really dominant player, whether it is uh, um, uh, Tencent through WeChat Pay. Uh, but I think it's going to be a template for uh, existing incumbents as well as new entrants about how they should structure themselves. So I'm hopeful that actually, um, once we get past this initial negative narrative, this will actually work out better in terms of improving the resilience of the Chinese um, FinTech sector. Thank you. Uh, here's a question from Emma Schlaffer. Uh, she wants to thank you very much for a fascinating talk. Uh, her question is about, uh, is, is there some way the government can help the small, small banks to manage their financial risks? She particularly pointed out the recent bankruptcy of Baoshan Bank last year. So I know a corollary to her question is, is moving to a digital currency, is this a way to manage the risks? Uh, so uh, thank you, Emma, for your um, remark, and also to all of you who are um, patiently sitting through um, my presentation and uh, um, responses. Um, in terms of the um, smaller banks, the joint stock commercial banks, but also some of the credit cooperatives, the urban and city credit cooperatives have been an important um, aspect of the Chinese um, regulators trying to get credit to the parts of the financial system that they feel are underserved by the financial system more broadly. So in fact, many of the targeted lending programs that the government has undertaken in the last decade or so have largely been run through the smaller banks 
but this comes with a corollary of risk as, um, uh, as the question I just mentioned. Um, these smaller banks don't have as good risk management um, uh, capabilities. Um, but here, I think the um, uh, Central Bank and the CBIRC, the Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission, are stumbling in exactly the right direction, which is to introduce market discipline. As you probably know, there is now an explicit deposit insurance scheme um, that has been set up. Um, and this takes, um, there has always been an implicit 100% um, uh, deposit insurance um, of the entire banking system and the Chinese government wants to send the message that that implicit system does not exist anymore. There is now an explicit system where banks have to pay premiums based on the um, evaluated riskiness of their portfolios, which already sends a market signal, but it's hard to have market discipline unless you have failures, because in any market economy uh, where there is risk, there is going to be uh, a set of negative outcomes. So one interpretation of the Baoshan uh, um, bank failure is that the government is trying to send a message um, that in fact, banks can fail. Um, and therefore, you the investor or you the saver and depositor should be careful about where you put your money. Uh, the problem, of course, is that it's very difficult to have these controlled events. You might say, okay, let me have this controlled failure, um, and that's going to make people sit up and take notice, but it could lead to a broader panic. We haven't seen that happen, and maybe there is a better way to do it than have these failures, but I think the Chinese government, uh, again, this might be too uh, empathetic a view of the regulators, but I think they are stumbling in the right direction. Notice I'm not saying they're moving in the right direction, they're stumbling in the right direction. And that again is because when you're trying to undertake a narrow set of reforms without a broader supporting infrastructure of reforms, it's going to create a lot of risks along the way. Mm. The, uh... Uh, one piece of data support your uh, point that the incremental capital output ratio in China has been dropping. In other words, you need a lot, much more capital investment to uh, gain more output. Now, the institutional reform will take time as you point out. So what's the outlook then for the foreign investors who want to invest in China? So China has certainly been very receptive to foreign investors in the past. It used to be just foreign direct investment and those numbers are perhaps overstated for a variety of reasons. But now China has made a commitment to uh, inviting investors into its bond and equity markets and you have a lot of passive money coming into China because uh, indexes such as the MSCI, uh, the Barclays Bond Fund Index and so on have started um, uh, including Chinese indexes uh, um, as part of their overall uh, indexes. So you have some passive investors moving into um, China and over time, um, if the confidence of foreign investors can be maintained, I think you will see more passive money moving in as a result of higher weightings but also more active money coming in. The difficulty for investors in China always is how do you make money off the China growth story? Um, and 
um, we've seen um, that the Chinese financial markets, the equity markets in particular, have often been very disconnected from um, GDP growth performance. So buying into a Chinese index is, has never been a good way of investing in China. That forces you to look more carefully at specific sectors or even within specific sectors at specific firms. And um, I think it's going to remain a very challenging landscape for an investor to think about how to make money. So a lot of uh, investors have actually tried to make money by um, essentially betting on movements in the currency rather than investing uh, in the equity or bond markets. I think that is going to change over time. But the key issue here again, is whether those markets are going to become um, liquid and deep enough and somewhat more connected um, to the real economy. And of course, disconnection between stock markets and the real economy is not specific to China. We see this happening in the US as well, uh, but it's been um, a long time phenomenon in the context of uh, China. So here again, my answer would be that uh, the best thing that China can do to invite foreign investors in is to force Chinese companies undertaking listings uh, or corporate bond issuances to adhere to very um, strict um, uh, and tight standards in terms of um, uh, reporting requirements, auditing requirements, corporate governance, and so on. And there's been very, very gradual progress in that direction. I wish it was faster. Well, our time is up and I want to thank you really giving us such a wonderful, informative, uh, educational talk about Chinese economy and also China's role in the international financial markets. I'm really impressed how much you actually know about Chinese financial markets. So besides knowing the world, you really dig into the depth of the Chinese financial markets and these challenges. And we appreciate you share your knowledge and wisdom with us today. It's been my pleasure and honor. Thank you, uh, Professor Xiao, and uh, thank you to all members of the audience for uh, sticking with me. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. Thanks very much.